and the founding myths of the Chinese Communist Party, youth and student movements play a crucial role, with the Red Guard and Cultural Revolution being ideological tidal waves that transform the nation. In the founding myths of post-Cold War neoliberalism, it was another student movement, the one that took place on June 4, 1989, in and around Tiananmen Square, Beijing, that shaped much of its identity as a supposed free and open society to a counterpoint of communist authoritarianism. In the West, notions of calls for Western-style democracy were what the students appeared to be advocating for. Yet in China, the people on the ground, in actuality, were searching for something, like most ordinary people, for things more practical, and in practice, nearly orthogonal to that promoted in Western media and government propaganda. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time to get it. I'm going to destroy the control Hello, Ni Hao. Welcome to People's Myth of Epic. I'm joined by Adam and Hans this evening. How are you boys doing? Happy Chinese New Year. Shisha. Sure, sure. I don't know a lick of Mandarin. So hello. <laughs> yeah, neither do I. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think I think they you answer know, the we'll phone by saying way. Just to teach you a little bit. I don't want to be taught. I don't. I don't want to know. Yeah. I don't want to know any Mandarin. Ignorance will set you free. <laughs> I, I'm. I'm ready. I'm ready to assume the mandate of heaven for this evening. Then we will be discussing the events in 1989 took place in Beijing, China. Uh, I think that this is a relevant topic. For a number of reasons we can get into. I think it's very contemporary considering recent events in the Western Hemisphere, as well as the Olympics currently taking place in China. Do you boys have any particular memories of the Tiananmen Square incident that took place in 1989? I don't have any personal memories of uh of that incident I was too young to really uh process any of that what i can tell you is um perhaps my general conception of it uh going through uh school and just kind of what you hear growing up uh you yeah, know it was always it was, it, where i wanted to start <sighs> it was always it was always kind of framed as you know there was this attempted protest, let's say, something amorphous, and uh, the Chinese government uh, didn't like it. 
and they killed a bunch of people. And then um, in every school textbook or uh, overhead uh, power or uh, projector slide, this is you know, still we're using projector slides for PowerPoint became ubiquitous in schools. Uh, it would always be the picture of the tank man. Um, you know, if you didn't if you didn't know anything else about the event, you would think that the event um, subliminally in your mind was just uh, there were there was a column of tanks and some guy didn't like it. And he stood in front of the tanks and uh, and got into like a yelling match with one of the tank crews and then decided to walk away when someone, you know, came up and helped him walk away. And that was it. All you really know about it uh, in your education as a young person and as a teenager, and even as I would say a, a you know young adult, is uh, there was something bad that happened, and the image of Tank Man, and the image of the Tank Man has become uh, it's just the whole zeitgeist onto itself. It's really fascinating. Uh, you know, the, this single image is utilized by like a wide variety of political spectrums. It's utilized by uh, you know American liberals and and uh, American neoliberals. It's utilized by European leftists. It's utilized by North American libertarians. It's utilized uh, negatively by uh, you know some revanchists of perhaps Maoism or Stalinism. Uh, there's still some of those people around. Uh, I think we affectionately call them tankies. Uh, it's utilized, um, you know, in, in a multitude of ways by the American right. Um, but this single image, you know, just it's it's a lot like the infamous and somewhat um, inaccurate image of, uh, you know, like this is very common in, in books and, um, you know, liberal Facebook memes is like the one guy that wouldn't give the the salute at a uh, at a rally in the Third Reich, and it's always like, be like this guy. They draw a big circle around him. Uh, and so the Tank Man image really overshadows the entire event. Uh, it is a fascinating piece of footage. Uh, if you actually watch the small snippet of footage in its entirety, uh, to watch, you know, a man, uh, you know, just stare down a tank column if you think about it for more than 10 minutes, you actually realize, you actually realize. I don't realize... want to save the actual analysis because at the beginning, the image itself is a great place to start. And I don't want to give any more context to it now because I think that that's, that's kind of the point of what I want to do this evening. Uh, the image is the first thing that any Westerner is going to think of. Uh, and that image, image is key word, a, the picture, because if you watch the video footage, uh, you'll be given a little bit more context. The foot, the picture on its own, it reminds me a lot of some of the famous pictures from the uh, war in Indochina. But yes, picture of man and tank is sort of the thing. Adam, do you have anything to add to what Hans has said? Uh, Your own, uh, you know, my impressions were, uh, you know, like Hans 
I was a little young to really have much to uh, to say on the matter, but I guess uh, not until the past maybe five to ten years would I have even considered that event to be something to question again. But I do remember, you know, during my more adult years uh, after college and such, I do recall that event being brought up uh, a lot in regards to the censorship that takes place in China, which it does. Uh, I know that for a fact because I've talked to Chinese people who used to work on their censorship grid called the Great Firewall of China, colloquially. But the uh, the event, uh, as they call it, is uh, not searchable on Baidu or any of their other search engines. Uh, you can probably read about it if you're in China, if you go through multiple proxies, hops, etc., going through different uh, locations, perhaps outside of Hong Kong. But I think that used to be one of the places you could start looking for things like that uh, until probably recently. Uh, but, you know, you censorship, Adam. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure how much you want to talk about censored? parallels. Uh, sorry, what's that? Well, would it surprise you to learn that that footage was aired in its entirety by Chinese state TV when it happened? It wouldn't now, but at you know prior to like I said the past five or ten years it would. Um, and uh, I did take a look at that uh, documentary you mentioned uh, that was put out in 1995. Forget the name of it, like the something of heaven or kingdom of heaven. Um, the Gates the, uh, of Heavenly Peace is the name of the documentary, which is, yeah. as I understand it, what the word Tiananmen means, uh, mm. translated. Yeah, that makes sense. The Gates of Heavenly Peace. Yeah. And the, docu the documentary uh, was done by the big boy NGOs. I believe it was Ford Foundation and Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, I could be wrong that it was both of them, but it was one or the other, if not both. Reunited at last, on. the automotive and, and oil industry. The documentary is... Right, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the uh, documentary is not bad. I mean, it's bad, but it's in the sense that it's, you know, um, neoliberal uh, propaganda. But it's it's sophisticated neoliberal propaganda. It has a lot of really good footage, and it has some important interviews that are actually very incriminating uh, to the partisans of Zog, uh, if you will. Particularly, Chai Ling uh, is one of the major characters in the story, and she does not come out of that looking well at all. And it's I recommend it if people are interested. It's a good documentary. Just, you know, you watch it with a critical eye. It goes without saying. But I think that it's interesting because... I, I want to say, like, so my impression of the events is very, I mean, it's, I think it's very clear what happened. Essentially, uh, you had a, a pro-democracy movement that wanted um, homosexualism and neoliberal capitalism and all of the great benefits that we get to enjoy here in America. And it was uh, crushed by a vicious crypto fascist military regime and they machine gunned to death 2000 people in Tiananmen Square uh, and the world looked on as this happened and nobody did anything 
and it was a great tragedy for democracy and you know we're still recovering from this today i'm sorry who are you and what have you done with nick uh, i've been watching a lot of television lately and no, no it's wonder. really helped clear things up for me adam that, yeah that, that i've also been reading place. the british press the guardian the <laughs> press is where i go to get my news and information yeah which uh interestingly enough a few years ago uh there was a leaked you know <laughs> leaked there was a, they released this cable that was uh you know british intelligence cable from the from 1989 uh, that was claiming that 2000 people were killed and something to that effect and they, the way they cover this is hilarious because they cover this as if, like, this was the, this was, this was the misinformation at the time that was being transmitted through British wires, and they released this story like in the past few years as if that is like, oh, bombshell, two thousand people. I mean, you can find old articles too, like Human Rights Watch, uh, using that number, two thousand people killed. And they'll even say like things like they're killed in Tiananmen Square, the military open fire machine gunning, uh, you know, the uh, democracy lovers and running people over with tanks and this kind of stuff. Uh, this is what you'll see. And I think I, I want to say from the outset, I, it's I don't again, I, we started with this. I, I don't speak Chinese. I've also never been to China. Uh, I spent a lot of time in San Francisco, though, if that counts. And I don't have sort a, of. It depends. The, uh, the Chinese population in, in San Francisco uh, originally was more from southern China, places like Hong Kong, and the uh, Mandarin or northerns, uh, the northern regions language Mandarin speaking uh, populations, like from Taiwan and uh, the uh, northern part of China, they've come in in the past uh, twenty to thirty years. And that's that's a different crowd. Uh, the original crowd uh, was much more pro uh, Anglo because of the Hong Kong aspects, and they actually were uh, somewhat critical of the Chinese Communist Party. But with the growth of the Chinese economy and the wealth, the recent waves of Chinese are a different breed. They're Mandarin speaking versus Cantonese speaking. They also are much more pro uh, PRC Beijing, I would say. And I have been to China, so if there's anything you guys... Thank you, Adam. That's, yeah. That's, that's actually helpful context. I mean, I, I, what I want to say is that I don't have... I understand a little bit about 20th century Chinese history. Uh, I don't... There's some stuff that will always remain opaque to me, not knowing the language. And I think that's a good way to approach this, because the thing is, we're seeing these events... Uh, through, as I have in my notes, it's ideology through a glass dreidel. And it's very easy, and you see this a lot in uh, coverage of a system, Western media coverage of what takes place in uh, the Near East as well. It's very common to just be, sh they sh show you images, and then they tell you what they are. I remember there was one from, uh, I don't know, it was like 10, 10 years or more ago where they had you know, it was, I, I believe it was in Iran where they had a they they made it out that some kind of political rally or whatever was, you know, this actually this pro-Western, uh, you know, democratic thing or whatever. And 
the people like Al Jazeera are obviously complicit in this. And I mean, the American uh, Jewish media is able to lie about domestic events that are all taking place in a context of English speakers, and they can distort that. And when you go to a totally foreign civilization, you know, they have the people, and then the people that they bring in are, of course, people who they're in league with. They're, uh, they always cultivate from whatever regime that the, the CIA and Mossad are, are dealing with. They cultivate a cadre of, you know, professional dissidents. You see that from any any given regime, be it Iran or... Uh, I don't really think there's much that they have much from North Korea, but that's neither here nor there. My point is, is I, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on uh, trying on the you know intricacies of Chinese politics. I know a little bit, but I think it reflects a lot more on the Western media because the thing about this event is the facts are really easy to understand, and it just takes a little bit to get a you know a reasonable understanding of what took place, and if you would just watch the system media. It's amazing to the extent that they were able to distort this. Uh, we can start with a few just really simple facts. Uh, for example, you would think that people were machine gunned in, in Tiananmen Square. Uh, that did not happen. Uh, no one died in Tiananmen Square. There were people who died on the early morning of, of June the 3rd and uh, June, you know, late night June the 3rd and early morning June the 4th. Uh, but they, none of them died within the square, and the circumstances of that are a little more complicated. And at no point did the Chinese military open fire on just on a crowd of people. And in fact, many soldiers and police were killed. Uh, I think at least thirty. Uh, the Chinese government's tally of deaths that took place on that day is, I think, two hundred and forty-one. Uh, but to be clear, again, uh, none of these people died in Tiananmen Square. It was the, most of the violence and killings that took place were uh, on a road nearby, but not in the square. And I think the student casualty was only like 20-something. The student casualty, specifically students, okay, was more or less on par with uh, military and police. Is my understanding. So I, I heard about, uh, or I should we say, can I, talk I, about I, yeah. Go ahead. Um, okay, yeah. I, I should say I, I read uh, on the uns.com website uh, about a quote unquote worker strike sixteen miles away, approximately, uh, where allegedly five hundred people died. Uh, I, I don't have any you know verifying evidence of this. There's no pictures in the article, but. Uh, is this at all something that you're familiar with? Have you heard of this? Um, is this related or is it a separate event? Yeah, that's kinda... where those numbers are 100% related. So, and I don't know about those numbers. Like I said, the official Chinese state numbers are, I think, 240 uh, something. Uh, maybe, there, maybe the numbers are a little bit higher, but there's Certainly not the outrageous numbers that have been claimed by particularly perfidious British media. State media often, too, by the way, which is hilarious in context. But they'll, they've claimed upwards of like 2,000 people. Uh, and then these people just lie about it, uh, saying that they're witnesses 
to it when they didn't see it. They were claiming that, you know, they could see it from the hotel, which you cannot see the, ho the, the square from the hotel. Uh, even the photographer who took the pictures of the tank man was able to shed a little more light on it. I mean, it's it's well known. It's just one of those things that, you know, they bring out every now and then when the anti-China hysteria is up. I was going to make, I made the point before we started recording the program. It's interesting that if you try to search in an American, uh, on the American internet, uh, so to speak, if you try to search for Tiananmen Square, you get like Tiananmen Square Massacre. I mean, imagine searching like U.S. Capitol building and you get a January 6th attack, right wing January 6th attack. That's essentially the equivalent. And yes, I know it's true that in China uh, these days, the, the, the media, if you try to search for things on the Internet, yeah, it's maybe a little bit difficult to find these images, but that's because they're not relevant. These images now are synonymous with uh, Western subversive propaganda. Like I said, this was aired on Chinese state television when it took place. So the people of that generation who came of age in the uh, 80s and 90s, they're perfectly familiar with this stuff. Maybe the younger generation isn't as exposed to this imagery, and that's probably for the better. It would be like a, the equivalent of, uh, you know, think about how much better it would be if you couldn't find um, atrocity propaganda from the Second World War easily on the American Internet. Think of how much better the American people would be. Just as a psychologically, I'm sure analogy. we'd be a lot better off. Um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's sure. True. I mean, it goes well, well this this brings up, uh, and we'll you, go. Do you get? Hmm. Well, this brings up something interesting. We'll go more into it. Uh, yes, you know, I think it is a. There's a common misconception about this particular incident and uh, and the, the nature of the Chinese internet. So, it, are elements of it censored, or are elements of it hard to find? Yes, definitely. Um, is the entire event erased this is coming from, from a podcast that is censored on the internet, by the way? Well, is the entire event erased from history? No. So I think that there's this, there's this common misconception about um, this particular event, and uh, people fixate so much on it um, in the Western world, and I, I'm not really sure why. Well, I have some ideas why. But you're, you know, you're bringing up how you know the Chinese do admit that that this thing did happen. They acknowledge it, and that much of this footage um, was actually aired on Chinese state television. You can find archives of the Chinese state television and news agencies in China actually talking about it as it was happening, reporting on it. Now, like we're uh, the devil is in the details here, and it's very obvious this is Chinese state television. So what you're going to get is filtered through that lens. But they were talking about it. I think that the misconception is that this entire event is somehow hidden in China, and people have no knowledge that it happened. That's patently ridiculous. And I don't think the Chinese leadership would actually attempt to just pretend this did not happen. Uh, plenty of people were there or knew someone there, and word gets out. Uh, now, why was it you know, aired on Chinese state media? Well, if you look at the, and I think Nick will go into this, the internal dynamics of the event, the Chinese... Uh, regime in particular under uh, Deng Xiaoping 
I had a very different view of it. And I think probably the majority of the Chinese public had a very different view of it, which is that these were this was an out of control demonstration. This this was a perhaps we would in, in English parlance uh, in our political sphere would call it a riot, maybe. Uh, but it was, it was regarded that way. It was regarded as an out of control riot. You know, there was the political animations were too hot. People were misbehaving. And unfortunately, uh, police action had to be applied. I think that that is how they viewed it at the time, and that's how they still view it. Uh, so yes, it is filtered through that lens. I'm not a you know, I'm not a, an apologist for uh, for China by any means. I hope no one takes that away that we're, we're picking sides here. But uh, just want to lay out that they their view of it is that effectively this was uh, just simply getting out of hand. Uh, I think that in the spirit they, of it, they were actually in favor of people uh, coming out to uh, protest and make their voices heard or whatever on, on the issues at hand during that day and, and the students. And, you know, there were people that were angry with some of the economic reforms that were being undertaken. But uh, by no means was this regarded as some kind of, uh, you know, these people are just ridiculous. We have to go execute them in the streets. Uh yeah, I don't think that was on anyone's mind at the time. Uh, and just something else Nick brought up, you know, about the, the British foreign press in particular and British state-run media, the BBC and various other outfits, keep in mind, are they have been explicitly paid and subsidized by the British government for uh, many decades. So you have to keep that in mind when you're consuming this news. Uh, what was the dynamic of Britain and China at the time? Well, this is 1989. This is uh, before the official handoff, uh, I believe in 97, of Hong Kong back under uh, uh, Chinese stewardship, some kind of, you know, the legal agreement where the Chinese basically have some higher level authority over the jurisdiction of Hong Kong. Uh, the British had not yet given up that control. They were on schedule to, but they hadn't given it up. And I think that some of these events were potentially blown out of proportion or made to look a certain way as uh, one of the last-ditch efforts by the British to retain um, this vestige of the old empire. Um, and not to make a, a judgment of whether or not they shouldn't have been doing that or not. Uh, I think you can make arguments for either side, depending on how you, depending on your, your viewpoint. But that was probably why they were so invested in it, more than anyone else. They were invested in uh, framing this through a certain lens because they had um, an impending dilemma over this Hong Kong issue. And if they could have, you know, turned this into a uh, protracted ideological conflict on the global stage, it would have been very beneficial because they could have found a way to uh, achieve enough support to potentially, I think, uh, remove their guarantees to transfer authority of Hong Kong. I, I assume that's what this was ultimately uh, about, other than potentially financial interests. This was mostly, you know, at its core, this was about Hong Kong. This was not necessarily about uh, students being killed in running gun battles. No one cares. Uh, and finally, you know, I want to say that... I wouldn't say... Okay, please finish. Yeah. Well, I just want to finish, you know... We, Go ahead, Hans. If, Finish uh, just to finish out, you know, recently uh, to keep up with current events, um, there was a series of uh, 
uh, a, like a two weeks worth of civil strife in uh, China's neighbor of Kazakhstan. And the death toll, uh, all in all, by even the most insane estimates, whether they're insanely lowballed or out of control high estimates, are actually probably about comparable uh, if you factor in you know, the size of each country's population and social dynamics. Uh, you know, a couple hundred people. And there's a, you know, this is, there's a number of security forces who were killed and uh, demonstrators killed. There's some obvious bad actors, you know, looters and so forth that get killed. Uh, and I think that we in the West have this view of Tiananmen Square. It's heightened by this, this belief, oh, um, how horrible. Hundreds of people died. And we look at the same thing with Kazakhstan. How horrible. Hundreds of people died. These are huge countries with massive populations and a totally different view of, of human life. I think that we, we make a much bigger deal of Tiananmen Square because we are under this belief that, oh, the Chinese don't think about it. So we need to think about it more. And they probably, you know, just to be cynical, they probably don't think about it because in the scheme of China, in the grand scheme of the population of China, one demonstration that got out of hand and resulted in a few hundred deaths is, but yet one bird clipped by a windmill. In, you know, in other words, it was, it's so insignificant for them that they, they don't really regard it with much uh, fervor because so many more horrible things happen in China on a frequent basis uh, that it's not even that that much of something to worry about or something to think about. Well, this is a country, yeah, this is a country where hundreds of thousands of people you, have, have died from industrial accidents over the last 10 years. You know, they have much oh, bigger and, issues. And mi mil millions died in the Cultural Revolution. With respect to Hong Kong, I don't think it's appropriate to say to frame it in terms of an end. It's more of a means. Uh, Hong Kong is an important piece of leverage that the vampire squid has in Asia. Uh, that remains true to this day, despite the rearranging of the actual formal political status of Hong Kong. Uh, you also said, Hans, that you were referring to Deng Xiaoping as and uh, his capacity as the leader of China at the time. And just to clarify for the audience, uh, that is not true that he was the leader formally. It is, however, true that he was the leader in actuality. Uh, it was uh, Zhao Zingyang, who was the premier of the party at the time. However, uh, he actually made a comment to Gorbachev, which... To uh, further to the point is another thing that was taking place at the time, which is uh, sort of the reason. Uh, before I get you know too conspiratorial, it, it's the the reason for why all of these Western journalists were in Beijing at the time, because Zi Yang was supposed to meet with Gorbachev, uh, but during the meeting when it happened, he actually uh, remarked that it was in fact. Uh, Deng Xiaoping that was really in charge of the party, despite Ziyang being the nominal head. And Ziyang is, from my understanding, he has all the hallmarks of, I mean, he was eventually purged. 
and probably deservedly so, because he was an advocate of uh, measures of privatization that were definitely dangerous to the Chinese people, uh, including going so far as to advocate for private media. Uh, I can understand. He represented one of the factions that were in the party at the time, and his the faction he represented was one that was nearly explicitly in support of the student demonstrators. And perhaps some of the reason for all the restraint that was shown, but there were a number of reasons for the restraint that was shown. And I would like to make one of many comparisons uh, to the North American hellscape called the United States of America. And it's you're tempted to look, uh, because you consume Jewish media, and you're, of course, intellectually retarded because of it. And what that leads to is you get dangled in front of your face this kind of... Uh, these views of, of other places, and you're meant to think, well, look at... This would never happen in America. America is so much better. But if you really look at what happened in 1989 in Beijing, you can see all of the ways that China is, in fact, superior to America. Uh, because it is, uh, at least in the most some of the most fundamental and important ways. China is uh, nearly racially homogenous. Uh, yeah, they have like, you know, 40-something small minorities. And, uh, well, of course, this is what the CIA likes to use to, uh, to polarize and exploit countries is uh, racial tensions, which they're doing with the Uyghurs. Uh, and they, that's a whole other thing. But it, it's relevant here. Because the point I'd like to make with respect to comparison uh, from this point is, you know, people remarked at the time when this happened that if something on this scale was to happen in America, I mean, imagine standing in front of an American the APC or a tank, you know? Well, it, it's happened it, in places like Baltimore. In, what you see in China is that the, yeah, these people are there is a lot more unity to the to the racial and cultural fabric of their society and there for example the uh, demonstrators were given audience with the party and given audience with the party i mean what did that happen uh, i was i was kind of have a ticking clock here as how many times before i mentioned uh, january 6 but i realized i already did earlier but the reason that you have so much restraint taking place is the military, the police, the party. These people are part of uh, what we joke about here in America. Uh, we refer to it as a society. You see, they live in one. And that's the difference. And because of that, there was a lot of restraint. Shown. You know, these military were peasant people. They're not altogether any different than the workers and the students. And there was a lot of commonality. They were able, in many cases, to just talk and uh, negotiate. Now, there was violence, and we, we can get into the reasons for that. We can get into what the, maybe the political tensions were. But my point is that uh, when you look at it from, you take yourself out of, you know, the qua for a minute, you can see what took place there as indicative of a much healthier society in many respects. Uh, because really what was taking place was a color revolution. And they fucked up. They weren't able to pull it off. 
Now, America, you would never need a color revolution because America is the end result of a color revolution. A color revolution, the idea is to lead to a rule by the international monetary power, the Jew, if you will. And America is, of course, already ruled by the Jews, so you don't need a color revolution in America. But well, you you just need to occasionally to stamp stamp out the uh, inconvenient heritage uh, settler population that tamed the frontier about 150 years ago. That is no longer uh, necessary. But uh, yes, I agree with you. A culling, you need the occasional culling, especially of the best. The best of the race need to be uh, crushed and uh, murdered. Continue. But uh, keep in mind that what, what happened on June 4th or June 3rd and June 4th was at the tail end of a six-week-long uh, struggle. And there's a lot of different things going on, a lot of factionalism within the party, etc. And uh, the... Let's talk, I guess, let's let's talk about the, the, the driving grievances behind, like, why did these people show out there in the first place? Who were they? Why were they there? And they were, you know, in the bulk of his students, but as this went along, uh, you had a lot of other people join. Uh, and there were, later, there were tensions with some of them because of some of the self-appointed leaders of the students, people like uh, Chai Ling that I mentioned earlier, who you can get, you can find out most of the things you need to know about Chai Ling if you watch the documentary mentioned. But I could tell you all the things you need to know about Chai Ling very quickly. Uh, Chai Ling actually held secretly an American passport. Chai Ling uh, ended up in recent years, in the 2000s, married to a uh, Massachusetts Republican. Uh, who's uh, the head of the Massachusetts Republican Party involved, like the the Mitt Romney crew, essentially? So she, I think, and she was also uh, evacuated along with a few others in the Operation Yellowbird, if you will, uh, exfiltration that was done by the CIA in conjunction with Hong Kong organized crime, which is another reason why something like Hong Kong needs to exist, so that you can have a hub for organized criminal activity, which allows. For the big boy organized criminal uh, gang, the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, to have a foothold. That's something we've talked about in the program before. But so, so was she? Yeah, there uh, were spooks involved. So, so and I'll get more to that later. CIA asset. I, I think she was a CIA asset. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do. That's that my that's my assumption. Seems uh, circumstantially and, but even if she probable. wasn't a CIA asset. Uh, yeah, it walks like uh, it walks like a uh, duck soup, and it it's uh, like a uh, duck soup. Peking you know, duck it must be duck soup. Yep. Uh, Peking duck. Yeah, there you go. The the other thing about her is uh, you'll see in the documentary, and the, the, what's famous about one of the interviews that she gave in that is uh, I could actually read it, uh, but she this is a woman who she was the self appointed like commander of it of the of the students. This escalated by the end. She was somebody who managed to work her way up uh, to the top. And she was the one talking about how people need to start setting themselves on fire. And her goal was, and she says this in, in the, on camera, you can see this. She says that what she wanted to have happen was bloodshed. 
what she wanted was uh, uh, here. She, she says, uh, all along I've kept it to myself because being Chinese, I feel I shouldn't badmouth the Chinese, but I can't help but thinking sometimes uh, you, the Chinese, you are not worth my struggle. You are not worth my sacrifice. Uh, she sounds a lot like also like the narcissistic uh, new left 60s radicals like Bernadine Dorn. Uh, uh, she she also with, reminds me uh, of our uh, homegrown uh, Asian American radical Ellen Powell. She was making the rounds uh, in Silicon Valley about uh, eight years ago, uh, suing every uh, of her former employers. Uh, she ended up actually uh, in charge of Reddit until... I think there was a even for redditor standards a revolt against her uh censorious and obnoxious uh demeanor towards the uh reddit community um but uh yeah just the narcissism and the uh I don't know just the hyperbolic victim uh narrative that is being spun uh very reminiscent of uh tiger women who have this kind of strange, uh, political ideology. Uh, they're not all like that. I mean, you know, channeled pro productively, it's, it's generally thought of as a helpful thing to get their children prepared for the world. But I would imagine she's childless and she, um, her children is like her, no, her she career has and children. With, she has, she has half Republican children. Oh, Oh, I, I meant I meant at the time in China who are Chinese. Uh, yeah, she she has she does not have. Yeah, she was. Yeah, she was not a mother. She was a ways. young woman. Um, no, 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 no. Um, to go on with some of the important quotes from her, we were actually hoping for his bloodshed. The moment when the government is ready to brazenly butcher the people, only when the squares are washed with blood will the people of china open their eyes only then will they be really united how can i explain this to my fellow students uh she goes on basically admitting that what that was the goal that she wanted i mean she, again like i said earlier she was telling people that they may should be lighting themselves on fire i mean this is the kind of person that's like yes you must you pour the gasoline on yourself and i'll light the match <laughs> you know because She's asked by the uh, Western journalist, are you going to stay in the square yourself? No. Why? Because my situation is different. My name is on the government blacklist. I'm not going to be destroyed by this government. I want to live. Anyway, that's how I feel about it. I don't know if people will say I'm selfish. I believe that people have to continue the work I have started. A democracy movement can't succeed with only one person. And I hope you don't report what I've just said for the time being, okay? Uh, now, a few words on uh, the democracy movement. Uh, this is the main distortion. I... So, what do these, politically speaking and ideologically speaking, what do these people represent? That democracy uh, is something that gets thrown around. I mean, famously, you have the so-called goddess of democracy which was a sculpture that they had put up in the square, which vaguely resembles like the Statue of Liberty. Uh, and you would be forgiven for thinking that that was the intended goal. And I do wonder the extent to which there was some input on that. Uh, I, it's hard to say because the people who made it themselves, 
specifically did not want it to specifically did not want it to resemble the Statue of Liberty. They thought that would be too pro-American. It was also originally supposed to be a man, and it, it became a woman. So it's a transsexual statue. Uh, but it was, uh, I think, modeled after social uh, socialist realist uh, Soviet. Uh, iconography specifically the, the, the usage but of women i think is interesting because it it just strikes me as kind of like a, a right out of the playbook of western liberalism that uses the woman mystique the woman's emotionalism the woman's uh, psyche to appeal to a certain part of the population and it's a vector that is obviously not um, capitalized on perhaps as much in traditional Chinese culture. And so it, it was probably a way in to this uh, actual, I think, somewhat grassroots event, which we can get into later. But I, I think it was co-opted. It fact, I, I think it was co-opted. Uh, that, that's, that seems to be what happened. Go ahead. Yeah, I agree. It, it was gay op, but, but it was a failed gay op. Uh, and it was so to talk about the democracy thing for a second, uh, again, I don't, I don't speak Chinese, but I do know a little bit about ideal, uh, the Chinese conception of democracy, at least from a Maoist perspective. Now, to say that they're a democratic movement, it does not follow that they are in support of a Western-style parliamentary uh, democracy. Not at all, because, you know, democracy, all, all this means is uh, the rule of the people, right? So the, the people's will can easily be expressed by the party, and the interests of the people can be expressed by the party. It does not follow that you must have American-style elections in order to be democratic from any given ideological orientation. And I would say, also, I would say that... Uh, the Chinese Communist Party is, in fact, or at least at points, has been more democratic uh, than because they were they didn't sell their first some time there. They were explicitly about closing off their society to rapacious parasitism from uh, the rest of the world or imperialism, you know, traditional European imperialism, uh, whereas American democracy is about trying to sell as much of the country as you can uh, to foreign powers so democracy and this is the, sort of the problem that generally the ideological dimension of this as portrayed by the western media now there are elements of the color revolution uh, the gay op if you will uh, that are pretty clear that were inserted into this but that's not what i want to focus on first i want to focus on what on the, the reality of it uh, before we get into some more speculation as to how it was being gamed and why that failed. So I think people are somewhat familiar with uh, the changes that were taking place in China under Deng Xiaoping. I mean, there's a lot of really uh, notable th quotes and things from Deng that are known to the Western world. I'm sure, Adam, you know some of them. Uh, it... Oh, the which, most famous one is... Uh, it was, uh, people you know, were, were making that, money. Right, yeah. It it doesn't matter if a cat is uh, black or white as long as it catches mice. I mean, that, that was 
I think as long as it catches mice, a, a useful one to kind of, I, I'm not a expert on the intricacies of each of these men, but I think the clear contrast with uh, Dung's predecessor who actually had put him in political uh, jail effectively, uh, that was Mao, uh, was, uh, the contrast was Mao was, was a poet. He was an ideologue. He was very, uh, you could say charismatic, uh, and, and that was the strength of his leadership style. But Deng was much more of a pragmatist. And so I think that that parable that he would often trot out, which I think was something from his uh, home uh, province, was a good way to encapsulate his personality in that he didn't really need to... Uh, whip up uh, people's excitement as much as actually he needed to see results or that's what he wanted to do. And one of the, uh, the results that he thought was what China needed was they needed to uh, stop being hungry and they needed to have homes that they could, uh, you know, raise families and things like that. So he was much more practical. Uh, I, I agree with everything you said about him up until the last part, uh, because I don't think it's true that, there were a lot of people who started to, because you had mm-hmm. to start have a lot more disparity. No, that's true. That, people that, who that's had true. security under that, that's you true. Know, the iron, yeah, that's true. The iron rule of Mao, you know, it that was the reason for a, a lot of the inst- that was taking place because there was security, and this was true exactly. in uh, the Soviet exactly. Union as well. There was exactly. a lot of security. Yeah in the old system but they and they, they were clearly they were clearly falling respects. falling behind in terms of just the world's uh, economic prosperity now yes the distribution was much more well, equal and much out as a totally agrarian society for the most part you know it like this is the story of communism yeah uh, in the 20th no, century we, really, we agree we can agree we, we can get into the details but these. we we agreed that this is what the student protest was mainly okay. about was the sort of disparities that were forming because of the economic reforms under under dung i, I think that's where we're going with this so i agree with that i mean anyway go yeah. ahead yeah it's correct yeah and so we also have to look specifically at the role of intellectuals in china and the the uh, role of the, the students now your china it's they have i mean this goes back to confucianism i think it's essentially like their racial nature is you know you go through uh academic bureaucracy and you pass tests and you're accorded a rightful place in the administration of the state i mean it actually <laughs> goes back a long ways in china and what was happening during this time is these students like for example uh, they had just cut these subsidies to the students. So and they weren't making, they weren't able to make money. I mean, these were some of their main demands is they wanted, they wanted guaranteed jobs. And what was happening was the students were now being shut out of the political apparatus because of the influence of uh, capitalism, which, by the way, when you compare to America, there are areas in China that were far more free market than the entirety of America. I mean, some of these economic zones, because America, you have all these, uh, you know, various social, I won't say socialist because they're anti, you know, America's an anti-social regime, but there are all kinds of complicated regulations and such to doing business in America. Whereas parts of China now is kind of a free for all and peasants were 
were getting rich and as they were getting rich, people started to be able to exert political influence and practice nepotism. And this was one of the main complaints that they had because as I understand, you know, as I understand it, the, and you can kind of see this a little bit in how Chinese in America operate, but the students are sort of the darlings. They're supposed to be the, the darlings of the, and this is the, the prestigious uh, academic institution in China, right? And they're being sort of shut out of their, of their rightful future. And there's a lot of bitterness about that. And there's, you know, a lot of labor bitterness among workers who came to, to join and support them as well. And the point is, is these people were not protesting in the name of wanting liberalism and capitalism. They were carrying posters of Chairman Mao, and they were singing revolutionary songs. Now, there also were, there was like this shitty rock and roll kind of concert, and that's when we get into, you know, CIA stuff, because that's a hallmark of color revolutions. In fact, the... The original color revolutions in Eastern Europe, for example, the Velvet Revolution, uh, was named that because of the association with the Velvet Underground and American rock and roll and blue jeans. And he had the, was the Velvet Underground cover banding. It was like the Plastic Palace people or something. I, I don't remember. It's been a bit. But regardless, rock and roll is a hallmark of the cultural Cold War and, and CIA subversion. Uh, and you see a lot of uh, other little American uh, pro-capitalist iconography. Uh, and in the documentary, for example, one of the uh, interview subjects talked about how he wanted Nikes. You know, and this is the kind of stuff that they put on blast is you want American product and rock and roll. And these days, of course, they will add more to that than they did back in the Cold War and make it about wanting to have... Uh, gay sex and uh, whatever other depravities are now the, you know, the, the uh, how do you say, uh, culture of, uh, of subversion, the anti-culture distortion of the, uh, the American system. But the point is, is that their grievances were, and their, their ideological perspective were tied back to the older generation of the Cultural Revolution. And this also brought some tensions with respect to the volatility of the situation, considering people who had lived through the Cultural Revolution and the time of upheaval could easily see this spiraling out of control into another time of chaos. And without, you know, the, without Mao at the helm, who knows how that would have ended? Would it turn to civil war or whatever? I mean, it could have been real chaos. And there was, this was something that I think was occurring to a lot of people. So even while they were sympathetic, by the end of this, a lot of people and a lot of the demonstrators themselves thought, okay, we've had our say and now it's time to go home. And it was only the extreme agitators who wanted to stay in the square and who uh, stayed until they uh, were politely asked to leave by the Chinese military. Um, so, in a certain sense, you might say that this was the Chinese new left. It was sort of a revisionism of the old orthodoxy of the left, adapted to the new circumstances that were brought about by uh, the economic policies and privatization 
that were taking place under the auspices of Jane Chopang. Um, do you guys want to add anything? Because I also want to talk about uh, the Negro problem. <laughs> um, well, uh, I don't know if now is a good time to talk about it or later or not at all, but uh, regarding the economic... Oh, uh, you're you're the expert on the uh, the Negroes, but um, I was just going to bring up the uh, the economy uh, factor. I don't think I'm an expert on. Okay. <laughs> I don't think it, um, uh, you know the thing about Negroes, they you know they are what they are, and they that added another dimension to this that I think is really interesting from the, the uh, Western uh, Jewish media with the how they try to frame ideologically what's taking place here. And something that they would struggle with even more today because uh, they've, you know, things are much more racialized and they would struggle even more with these inconvenient facts. But there was a, a racial element to this as well because... In, from the context of what I've said about the students and how they feel that they're uh, not being given what's owed to them and they're they're sleeping in, you know, very small, like, you know, even by Chinese standards, uh, their drawers that they're sleeping in are very small. Uh, they had a lot of issues with Negro, uh, African Negro, dark continent Negroes who were being put up in much more luxurious quarters. And they were uh, they were mud dicking Chinese women, and this created a lot of resentment. And uh, prior to this, in, in 1988, there were essentially race riots that were taking place, and this this bled into Tiananmen because it was a it was seen as a a great betrayal of who should be the next generation of of the party are being treated as they're being treated worse than than literal niggers. I mean th this was a major factor and when they when they were going up to the government building the you know what, what do they call it the the hall of the P great people's hall I think it is it's the hall of essentially the people. their capital yeah. uh, to the west of the square hall of the people. Yeah, uh, who, uh, who, who was putting up who was putting up black people? Uh, is this Americans or uh, uh, blacks or who are the like you said that they're from the Africa state. itself or the, the Chinese state. are paying for the this? It comes back to yeah, yeah they it, it goes back to old sort of cold war type stuff, you know. Uh, oh, oh right. Africa, yeah. You know, well, I mean the Chinese Africa. the Chinese was, were bankrolling programs. a lot of the revolutions in uh yeah. in the later revolutions in Africa. Yeah. South Africa, Zimbabwe, <laughs> etc. Rhodesia. Yeah. 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 They, this goes back a long ways. They've had they've had Africans there as uh, exchange students for a while, but and it was, you know, obviously nobody Nobody, nobody's ever happy, right, when you have Afghans around. Uh, it doesn't make anyone feel better, but it especially doesn't make anyone feel better when your own conditions are deteriorating. Uh, it really rubs salt in the wounds, and that was exactly what it did. And there were chants about, you know, uh, kill the foreigners, get the foreigners out, kill the black devils. Uh, and this was an undercurrent to it, which I mentioned because... 
well, mostly because it's not really talked about. It's also not hard to find at all uh, information on it. I found academic papers on it. But the important part is that it, if you try to, like, if you put on your libtard hat or whatever and you, you assume, like, this is what the media shows you to be, that these are people just like you, libtard, who want, like, uh, you know, American democracy and this shit... It just doesn't square very well with the reality that there was a, a racial component to uh, some of this. Uh, I don't know if I have much more to say about that, but I... I okay, so I, I, wanted, I wanted to talk about the... Uh, not, the not the legitimacy of the grievances, because I think those, those were pretty clear of what the students were... Uh, complaining about, I mean, effectively it was you know about corruption and inequality and all that stuff. It, it's pretty easy to understand. What I wanted to bring up was the strategic decision making of the Chinese Communist Party to embrace the global marketplace. Uh, it was done um, not just at the time of these protests it had been taking place somewhat gradually but probably at a increasing clip since i believe 1979 so it was about 10 years and this was under dung and it was a initial decision to actually experiment with uh, export zones they called them special economic zones uh typically located around port cities like shanghai but also close to hong kong uh Shenzhen, places like that, and they would uh, they would effectively leverage you know do labor arbitrage, uh, leverage the fact that they had a very cheap, hardworking, disciplined, relatively intelligent workforce that was able to do light industry and export just like all the other Asian economies had been doing. And Deng had actually been inspired by another uh, Asian country, Singapore, which had embraced uh, hyper capitalism really. But specifically the export model that was uh, embraced by most of the Asian tigers, uh, Taiwan, Korea, Japan, that had led to tremendous economic growth and prosperity. Uh, And when I say prosperity, that doesn't mean that everybody is equal. Uh, It doesn't mean that everybody has a job, but it generally means uh, to most economists, and I would include myself in agreeing with this definition is that it means that there's relatively low unemployment. There are going to be some people left behind and that that's unfortunate, but generally speaking, you're, you're looking at maybe below 5% unemployment with rising economic growth, rising economic wealth, uh, and of the nature that characterized the East Asian variety, it was growth that the world had never really seen. It was looking at uh, possibly double digits per year. Korea was doing that. Japan was doing that. Uh, I'm not as familiar with Taiwan, but uh, what Dung had done, it actually, he'd visited Singapore and he'd noticed that this was a population that was um, about 80% Chinese. And for all intents and purposes, it was, it was Chinese. Uh, the rest was, you know, holdovers from the British occupation. They had Indians there and obviously it's located in Southeast Asia. So it's, uh, it's got a lot of Malay populations, uh, to make up that, that difference, uh, from the 80%. But it had been the 
the part of the Chinese diaspora that had colonized uh, that part of the world for centuries and they had become extremely successful. They're, that's why they're actually <laughs> hated or disliked, at least in a lot of those countries, because they're much more successful than the uh, local populations, relatively speaking. Uh, and Dungan noticed that these people were doing really well and he wanted to emulate that success in China. And he, I don't know if he was looking at the Soviet Union, but there had been a falling out between China and the Soviet Union uh, that obviously the Americans were uh, encouraging. Uh, but part of that was just from the Chinese not really liking the Soviets very much uh, and probably vice versa. Uh, and I don't know how much that had to do with the economic uh, planning that the Soviets were advocating for. But the Chinese were really just stagnant uh, economically. And yeah, everybody had a job, but it uh, it was like people were not very rich. Uh, and another uh, Deng saying was, uh, you know, to be rich is uh, glorious. Uh, and this is not necessarily capitalism per se. This is a Chinese thing that has, I think, been deeply rooted in Chinese history and culture. And if you, if you know Chinese people, they're, they're very success driven. They're very, uh, you could say materialistic. It's not, it's not a Western thing that they've just imported. They have imported the trappings of what they view as success, but the fact that they want success, the fact that they want to be academically successful or materially successful, I think that's a Chinese thing. Uh, and I think Dung was realizing that and, and trying to harness it. Uh, and the success of that, as defined by the things I laid out before as to what economists would call prosperity, uh, was pretty much undeniable. Now, there were also some people that were getting left behind, uh, for sure. But compared to maybe what's happened in the West in the past 30, 40 years, uh, I would say they were probably having an easier go of it, to be honest. Um, but it's all relative, you know, so they're comparing themselves to their parents, et cetera, as we compared ourselves to ours. And uh, the the trajectory of China is is indisputable. I mean, it's it's been extraordinary. There's been no other nation in the history of the world that's probably grown as quickly and as grandly as China has. And I think that is directly due to the reforms that that Dung laid out. So am I am I a fan of the guy? I mean, I'd, I'd probably put myself in that category. Um, does it mean they did it perfectly? No. Uh, does it mean that the students that had some critiques were wrong? No, I think I think it's a good thing that they notice these problems. And I think it's also to the credit of the Chinese Communist Party that actually, as you mentioned, they did include them in at least some of the conversation, which, as you pointed out, is certainly not what the American government will do to uh, its own population or the Canadian government, for that matter, if we're ever going to talk about what's going on up there. Uh, so I just wanted to lay it out, you know, kind of the, the broader historical context of what China was doing and I think why it was uh, smart, frankly. And, you know, you can maybe say it wasn't necessary, but I think it was wise because uh, the state of affairs of the Chinese people and the nation is in a much stronger position now than it was in 1979 because China, China was a joke. I mean, it was, uh, it was a backwater. It was, you know, the, no, it, no real I get, industry. I get I really disagree with you. Uh, I think that success should be measured as national success and prosperity as national prosperity. The rich mm -hmm. have no nation. 
a place like Singapore is like the perfect example of this because what it, I mean, Singapore is a, like the hub of Jews in South Asia. And uh, the well, that may, that may be true, but, but, it, but it's a, it's a Chinese, and it's a Chinese uh, city state. Um, you know, the population is still 80%. Uh, I agree. I agree with you that I agree with a lot of what you said. I just disagree with the ultimate conclusion because uh, what I see taking place is a is what a lot of people saw taking place, which was a betrayal of their revolution. And well, it, what it does is it opens yeah. up an avenue yeah. uh, for the parasite to worm its way in. No, and, and the, this happening. is what this is what uh, Xi Jinping is trying to address. The, the parasite right is now. worming its way in. Yes, th this is what this is what the current Chinese I would government say that is effectively the reason trying to rein in. Th and this jumps ahead to yeah. To some of my yeah, you're right. It's a yeah, yeah, you're right. It's a it's definitely a ongoing tension within China, uh, and this this dynamic is is uh, from what I can see still very real in their own domestic politics. Uh, I would say though that this jumps a bit ahead to some of my conclusions about it, but I would say that the Cultural Revolution, in many respects, made China stronger. Now, to be rich is not necessarily to be stronger. It made them stronger because it created enough unity by wiping away the polarization. And yeah, sure, I mean it was messy and chaotic. And obviously, if you're attached to certain traditional forms. Uh, you're going to have a hard time with that because it wiped away a lot of these things. It wiped away a lot of history. I think that's a sacrifice that may be necessary under certain circumstances. And it made it so that it was harder for the for the vampires to wedge their way in and why the, cult the attempted color revolution failed. Because the cultural revolution was in many ways a success. And what Dang was doing was unwinding some of the cultural, some of the stagnation, because, yeah, it's true. I mean, you read a lot. There are a lot of gross inefficiencies from a industrial perspective. I mean, there's a lot of cartoonish shit that took place. There's no getting around that. But it had a, it had, it had a purpose. It had a, it had a real political purpose. Of course. It's about, it's I, about trading I off think there's something to pros be said and cons. That. And there is something to be said for what, uh, Mao did and I, I've I've known Chinese people actually and interestingly enough I was uh, hanging out with them in Singapore and they, they you know they were from China but uh, Singapore is and they actually they, they were the ones that taught me about what Dung was doing down there I mean he was noticing the Singaporean housing uh, system where which I don't want to get uh, beaten off you know a, a sidetrack here but uh, the Singaporean model is, is, is interesting and, and I would encourage anybody to study, uh, the workings of, uh, uh, Lee Kuan Yew. He did an incredible job there as well, but it, it's, it's a trade-off and, and the, the Chinese will recognize some of the strengths of what Mao did. I mean, he also unified the country against the Japanese. Um, a lot of that was aided by the Americans, obviously, and the fact that the, the Japanese were crushed by the Americans, I think mainly that was the reason why Mao had an opening to do what he did. But he unified the country and, and that, that, you know, nobody can take away from him, uh, I think. And we did a show on this, but what is also somewhat indisputable, I would say indisputable, is that he was a very poor economic manager. Uh, he, his leadership directly led to the deaths of tens of millions of Chinese. 
and that was through his agricultural reforms, which were designed to effectively export basically all they had to export, which was food and to import uh, industrial equipment so they can industrialize. And you could say that was necessary. The, pe- the same people, you know, will argue that what uh, what what Stalin did was necessary uh, to industrialize his country, and that also resulted in millions of deaths. Uh, but you have to recognize that these what are about the millions of deaths costs. that took place in the Industrial Revolution. No, I no no no, I mean, no 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 no. I don't I don't think I don't think the number of deaths even get close in the European. Uh, history compared to what happened well, in population, China. Population population wasn't as high. It wasn't necessarily millions, but there were, were there. Were yeah, yeah. Of, of course, of course, people of are people are dying throughout history. Uh, you know, but the, the speed at which people died unnecessarily in China, I think, was was inexcusable. And and that's what what Dung was trying to get well, away yeah, from was, was just this is is adhesion to ideology ideology at all costs. Whereas you need to recognize that, you know, sometimes you need to look at the numbers and make sure people have got enough to eat and everything like that. And there were other people involved. I, again, I'm not a huge expert on all the different players here, but I, I'm just saying that there were pros and cons. And I think it's it's unrealistic, number one, to say it's an either or. I mean, I would like to say that there's things to learn from both sides. Uh, and I would I would still argue that the relevancy of your nation however united or disunited you are or how much parasitism is going on which you never want any parasitism but what you're looking at is the sum total of all these things the relevancy and the strength of your nation is really the the final analysis and china was very insignificant they they were nowhere near as powerful as they are today and there were costs in getting to where they are today but if i were in charge of china and if i were chinese i would be comfortable with the choices that have been made now going forward you could debate what you're going to do but i think compared to where mao left them where there are basically a bunch of people in rice paddies with a couple of uh, backyard steel furnaces and no real, no real military. I mean, what, what they did in the Korean war was they had, they had a strategy of sending millions of soldiers into the machine gun nests of the Americans. Okay. And the Americans would basically just run out of bullets because they, they had an industrialized military. Now, those are cl- very clear differences. One, one was an economy that was you know, much more controlled by disparate, overly wealthy capitalists, but it had an te- a huge technological edge versus one that was much more equal, but had zero technology. And you could see which one was doing much, much more damage on a per capita, per soldier basis. And I would argue that the, uh, the American military was much more strong and it was only because of the locality and the sheer numbers um, of the Chinese that they were even able to do what they did, but go ahead. This is very, it's, it's, it's very, uh, do you say dangest? I think it's dangest. It's very dangest of you. Okay. I, I'm I just, uh, I'm a fan of Lee Kuan Yew personally I, I, in Singapore. I, 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 yeah. Well, you know, I would I would add I, I you know I appreciate your perspective. I I would add that 
without the political foundation that was built through the Maoist revolution, of course, what of happened course. in terms of, of economic planning would not be possible. Absolutely. Uh, just like, Absolutely. Wh- you know, uh, that goes, Ch- China that goes. is I mean, not, that's, that's China's thing. China and is not like Western capitalist. Like they're the, they're, they're much more of a you. fascist nation than any other on, on the current world stage. Well, they say, of uh, relevancy. Okay, well, they take socialism with Chinese characters. Right. We're not going to be able we're looking from the outside. I can give you my observations. You give yours. I would, to bring us back on topic, since you mentioned Lee Kuan Yew, I can say that Lee Kuan Yew actually said in the wake of what happened in Tiananmen that he would have happily shot 200,000 protesters to maintain the, the, <laughs> oh, yeah. the that, that guy was That guy was size. a serious autocrat. I mean, you know, people look at him as like kind of a Western puppet or stooge or something no no he was just playing both sides he's a very shrewd dude if anybody's never studied him um very interesting guy there was a funny article i read years ago about him where because his son it's sort of a, a weird thing where his son basically took over uh the prime ministership not directly after him there was another guy i can't remember his name after lee kuan yu stepped down i think in like 1990 something uh and then his um his son lee lee sien uh something like that um uh took over uh in the past like 15 years but there was a funny article about his son uh and it was like profiling him like the new prime minister of singapore to his and it was comparing him to his dad and one of the anecdotes they gave was uh, lee kuan yu and his son go out to test the new singaporean army's rifle or something and uh you know lee kuan yu gets up there and he's he's got the gun firmly gripped and he fires off a bunch of rounds, you know, hits him dead center. And then his son kind of gets up there, meekly holds the gun and he can kind of like barely hold the thing and it shoots wildly. Uh, just to kind of contrast, you know, Mr. Tough guy versus the, uh, inheritor of what that man built. And he really did do an extraordinary job. I mean, Singapore was a, another basket case. And, uh, in the aftermath of the second world war, it was kind of, um, kind of like a on- enclave of, the Malaysian fledgling Malaysian government, but it used to be a, a British colony like uh, Hong Kong. Uh, so it, it really was kind of struggling to figure out what it was going to do. And it was basically, you know, Lee Kuan Yew's leadership that they became as uh, successful as they've become. Uh, I, I've known some Singaporeans and uh, one friend of mine, he actually, uh, his father uh, was a big opponent of Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, because he really was kind of a, an autocratic guy and he would quell a lot of the uh, dissent. And uh, even he could not deny that uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Lee had done an extraordinary job in bringing Singapore to where it had, had grown from until it is uh, and to where it is today. So anyway, enough said about Singapore. You know what happened to... Deng Xiaoping's eldest son? Uh, no. Uh, what happened? Oh, yes. Well, you see, uh, Deng Xiaoping's eldest son, uh, well, there was a lot of suspicion regarding Deng Xiaoping because, I mean, he was eventually sent out to pasture for quite a while, as most people probably know. Well, his son, 
was at Peking University, and after he was, uh, the suspicion was brought on Dang, uh, he was defenestrated from a university window and paralyzed from the waist down. Who pushed him? You see, that's something I've always, uh, well, it was, it was Red Guards that threw him out of the window. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. Now, I really always had my imagination captured by... I always had an association with Maoism and defenestration because of that. I've always thought it was a really appropriate way to deal with um, troublesome academics. I, I really think that defenestration on a massive scale would probably do wonders for the Western world. Well, you know, uh, George Soros's son is... Uh roaming the hallways of university at the moment, I believe. Speaking of George Soros. Yeah, he had, he had some things to say about, about China the recently. the revolution aspect. Now, George... Well, George Soros actually put in, a, he set up one of these NGO slush funds in 1988 in Beijing. Uh, dumped like uh, a million or something, million and two million into it. Of course. <laughs> uh, and also National Endowment for Democracy. Of course. Also known as the CIA, opened two offices in Beijing in 1988. Um it was, you know, these people were there. And not only that, fucking Gene Sharp. You know you know who Gene Sharp is? I do not. Gene Sharp, if you don't know, he's the guy who wrote, uh, in many respects, he's sort of the architect for the, the certain media framing of the color revolutions. Uh, he's a CIA, obviously, he's a Harvard guy, but he's clearly a CIA uh, asset. Uh, or agent, even. He uh, it was there, actually. Deng Xiaoping removed him from the country. Uh, this is a guy who's wrote, he writes all the uh, books about, like, nonviolent. Uh, it, it's the framing of when you, when you do a democracy to a, another country, you, you frame it in uh, this context. He's, he's, people know who he is, I mean, you can look him up. But he was there. He was actually removed. In the country and sent to Hong Kong. He went to Hong Kong. Uh, so a lot of the people who are who've had a you know big some are around today. I mean these people are all. Uh, Gene Sharp I think died like two years ago, but he was there. I mean a lot of it's the same playbook that they were running, and it didn't really work out. And that's I think another interesting part of the story that we could focus on. We've talked. I gave a little bit about my explanation for why it didn't work out. I would say, to to be succinct, I would say that it didn't work because the Cultural Revolution worked. Uh, it didn't work because they weren't able to isolate the target of a you know the the state essentially. There, it wasn't. They didn't have the means to wedge in there quite yet. And I don't know if they will in the future, uh, the trajectory of where China is going. Uh, the more that they can keep Western propaganda out, the better they'll be. But capitalism itself is going to breed a situation of instability, as it always does. So I, we, we've already kind of given our piece on that. But point being is, 
in something towards a summary. What you had here were you had a very real organic event and the usual suspects uh, tried to get in there. I mean, and this was again, this was a time, a critical time in, in world politics, so to speak, because Gorbachev was coming to China. So there's a lot of reason, a lot of cover for why you can put people in there. Uh, you can put up a lot of what we see was something that was meant to appeal to a uh, simulation by Western Jewish media. Uh, a lot of the iconography and props, you know, English language signs, uh, Western capitalist product, uh, like clothing and uh, the rock and roll music. It's unclear exactly who the main players in that would have been because, you know, people can kind of get here, here, wear this, or whatever. It's not that hard to do that. But I think that people like Chai Ling are the good suspects for active collaborators. And, you know, she's the one who's trying to get people to stay there and escalate the situation. It's like, like, hello, fellow Chinese, are you ready to overthrow government? And what's really downplayed in the Western media is the extent of violence that took place. I mean, they were throwing Molotov cocktails. Uh, they lit uh, soldiers on fire, threw one off of an overpass. I mean, there was a lot of violence that was taking place as this escalated towards, the, you know, June 4th. Now, this wasn't, again, to be clear, this wasn't taking place in the square. This was around the square. Most of the violence that took place took place as the military was trying to push it way into the square to clear it out because that was their directive that was finally given us clear out the square but they were under explicit orders not to shoot anyone who wasn't shooting at them but they also they commandeered a there was a bus that was like low-key carrying soldiers and they commandeered it and this they had access they had weapons they they take took military weapons so their weapons around some uh, nearby apartment buildings had bullets ripping through them and the violence, yeah, again, the, the, when the military tried to enter, they were turned away. So they didn't force in that heart. They eventually moved in pretty late at night. Uh, we didn't really talk about the hunger strike much. That's another thing that that's very, that glows heavily. Because you, you start talking about people like Gene Sharp and their use of the model of things like Gandhi, for example. That's what Gene Sharp got his start doing as a model for uh, political revolutions from above uh, was the use of the Gandhi model. And the hunger strike, a lot of doubt has been cast on it as to the sincerity of it. A lot of accusations of people were actually just eating. Uh, nobody died. I mean, nobody went full Bobby Sands. And it was maybe performative. Uh, there's a good chance of that. Uh, some people are trying to appeal to the media coverage of it, even even domestic uh, party media. So the hunger strike was going on throughout this, and and people were ready to leave. And, and essentially, that's really the story. Is like, eventually, the party, the state, was like, okay. All right, now actually, now is time to go home. And a lot of people, most people, in fact, were like, yeah, it is probably time to go home. And they went home. So the tank man was what Hans started out talking about. You're shown the picture of the tank man. 
And as is always the case, you're denied any context to this. It's much better to actually watch the video. And also watch, you can watch the video that was broadcast on Chinese state TV. And what do they say? They say, look at how much restraint we're showing. Because if you watch the video, the, the tank tries to go around the guy multiple times. And the guy keeps stepping in front of the tank, like climbing on the tank. And the tank, by the way, was leaving Tiananmen Square. This was afterwards. This was in the morning. It, it, it was leaving. Okay? And this guy, nobody knows who he is. Nobody knows why he was doing this. People project on it and speculate. It makes for a perfect propaganda image. You know, the documentary that we've been discussing, it even opens with some, you know, sanctimonious bullshit about, like, human power standing up to the inhuman machinery of the state. It's just like... It writes, it's, I mean, the guy, the photographer, I mean, yeah, great, it's a, it's a great picture for manipulating people because you don't, people don't know anything about Chinese politics or they don't even know what took place this day. And they're shown this image and it is powerful because, I mean, the dude, little Chinese man standing in front of a tank. It's like, why is this happening? I mean, what could this mean? And you, you can speculate and then they can, the, manipulators can help you along with your speculation, leading you to a conclusion that has nothing to do with reality. I mean, the guy, I mean, nothing happened. The guy was, nobody knows who he is. You know, people have claimed, too, that it's, like, secret police that, like, ushered him off to try to paint the image that this is a, some kind of a dystopian state, like, I don't know, the UK. Yeah, I was going to ask if anybody knows what happened to him. I mean, obviously, the perhaps obvious suspicion is that he was picked up by Chinese intelligence and he's been uh, dungeoned or worse. Uh, Maybe it's suspicion to who? Who's, whose obvious suspicion is that? I mean, uh, that, like that, would, that, would, that would be... UK, uh, life in the UK on the China. No, no, no. That, that's just that's just one possibility, and that that's probably what uh, I would have assumed. You know, ten years ago. Uh, nowadays, I don't know. Uh, he could have been. He could have just left, and you know, nobody picked him up, and he just uh, never talked about it again. Or, or he could have been a paid asset. Uh, there's many possibilities, uh, but the fact that he hasn't been heard of uh, since does raise some questions. So following the events of, of June 4th, the Chinese state issued, I think, something like 21 arrest warrants. And they weren't able to pick all of these people up because the CIA got to them first and got them out of the country through the triads in Hong Kong. And how many people were arrested and charged after January 6th in America of last year? Because it was over 700 people. So I want to say uh, that the number of people who have been arrested is in the several hundred uh, range. It's definitely coming close to 1,000. Uh, the number of people who have been um, pursued by authorities, pursued by journalists, pursued by 
various, um, I suppose, private actors, we should say, uh, is numbering into tens of thousands at this point, whether it's people who are associated with the event might not have even been there, um, or people who were there, or any, anything in between. Um, so there's been a, you know, sort of a massive undertaking over the last year. I mean, it's just been uh, perpetual at uh, just combing through the details of all these people's lives. Uh, you know, you still have the FBI, I believe, issuing um, public statements and public wanted, uh, in, I don't know, ads, and not really wanted ads, but uh, pieces of the media, and, and they're framed as like, you know, wanted for questioning. And it's pictures of individuals, some of which are very grainy, uh, that that were there that they have apparently still not identified, and the the gist of it is that you know if you if you know who this person is, would you please contact the authorities, contact the FBI, and and tell us more about them. Uh, so this has been going on for for over a year. So there's still people in federal lockup uh, who haven't even seen trial, haven't even been properly arraigned, is my understanding, some of them for months now, or some of them, oh, well, you know, close to a year now. Uh, there's been people who have had to fight massive legal battles. Uh, so to your point, Nick, uh, the, the, the level of uh, state vengeance that's been employed here, uh, I think... It, it is quite extreme, and it's difficult, I think, for the United States in particular at this point to talk about uh, the legacy of Tiananmen Square or the legacy of various uh, Chinese state repressions or sort of overhanded reactions to demonstrations, whatever you want to call it. Um, when we have had you know, a year-long crusade uh, pioneered and, and led by um, you know, the American internal federal police, which is effectively what the FBI um, have become. So there's a there's an immense level of hypocrisy there. Uh, this is and this is this is unique in American history. Uh, this level of, of deep, targeted, uh, persistent investigation is is truly sort of insane in the context of American history. It would not be insane in the context of Chinese history, but for the United States, this is, uh, this is quite new. Well, it, it's, it's, I think it's comparable to COINTELPRO or something like that in the 60s, but the difference is it's targeted towards uh, right of center versus left of center. But, well, I mean, the, there's obviously the part blurring of the, the lines, is that... but the sure, FBI has done sure. this stuff before. In the, Vietnam, they were very aggressive, probably more so, honestly. Well, I, I would say that the primary difference is, uh, yes, there was there was massive amount. There's been a massive amount of federal action on various subgroups over the years. We can go back to the 19th century and look at various anarchists and uh, proto-Marxists and very, these other strange groups that uh, uh, began appearing here uh, you know, as soon as we had all this sort of unchecked. Um, immigration from the Austro-Hungarian Empire you know, had to deal with this anarchist problem, and then we had to deal with a socialist problem. And uh, yes, those groups were pursued by the nascent versions of the Justice Department and so forth. Uh, this is before the FBI existed. We had all kinds of raids for many years. We had anti-communist actions. We had 
as you mentioned, Cointelpro would pack on. The difference, I will say, is that never on this scale have we had uh, a massive, well-funded, well-engineered, media-supported, uh, unending investigation with police power uh, against thousands of American citizens for a relatively minor event. That is uh, something that is characteristic of China. That is something that is characteristic of massive but poor societies. China, uh, countries like Egypt, uh, countries like Indonesia, uh, the Soviet Union, Russia today, Kazakhstan. Uh, this is more emblematic of them, Bolivia. But this is unique to the United States. And we have this, you know, we have a secret police with media support and lots of public support, let's just be honest, uh, that is launching a massive investigatory manhunt. Um, that is new. And so I, I think it is difficult going forward to say that, or to, you know, for the United States uh, to, to complain about internal actions in China when this is what's being done to American citizens for a relatively minor event. You know, uh, I think I brought up earlier that why Tiananmen is, uh, I think, perceived differently by the Chinese because in a scope of Chinese society, which is massive in scale and depth, uh, the casualties and the fallout of Tiananmen are relatively minor. I mean, truly just minor. Um, and in the scope and depth of the United States, if we lived in a more nominal country, uh, January 6th would be seen as a relatively minor event. Uh, you know, I've brought this up before. Um, one of the events that Smedley Butler, uh, one of our great hypocrites actually, was involved with was uh, putting down a veterans riot in front of, uh, in front of the Capitol, which got way out of control. They were running gun battles. Uh, nothing like that even occurred on January 6th. And you didn't have massive amounts of federal investigation and police power employed against thousands of people who had showed up at the event. You know, the, the event was bloody. It was nasty. There was some fallout. But well, people moved on. The, the FBI had not been created yet. And then, the well, that's sophistication not, that's not the of the surveillance state it, had not gotten that's, to the point that's where it still, is now. Okay, Sure. But that's not the point. You know, the, the, the sophistication. It factors in. I get your point, but it does it, play a role because if it's easier to do, it's more likely to be done, all else being equal. But go, go ahead. Well, what I'll say is that. Like that uh, too. How many children? How many children were killed? in the events of June 3rd and June 4th in Beijing, China. To my knowledge, no children were killed. You know, in the late 90s, I think it was 1999 or 98 probably, because in 99, I don't, there probably would have been a little bit different conversation. Maybe it was 99. But uh, in the late 90s, Bill Clinton met with the then premier of the party, uh, Zemin or Zemin, I don't know how you say that. Zhang Zemin. Chinese. Uh, and in this, Zemin, yeah, the uh, uh, subject of conversation, Clinton spent an hour 
doing a, this fucking more this Americanist moralizing about Tiananmen Square massacre. Okay, this is the same Bill Clinton that presided over the slaughter of children at Waco, Texas. I mean, it's just comical. This whole fucking regime, like, I mean, America cries out in pain as they strike you. We all, we all know this. But it's even funnier when you, in 1999, when they were bombing Belgrade, they bombed the Chinese embassy. That's right. Of course, they claim, oh, this was an accident. But when the Chinese, when the Chinese protested this, like something, 10,000 protested at the U.S. embassy. What does the Jewish American media say? Oh, these are, these are uh, prop paid actors, you know, by the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, the, the grievances that we distort in Beijing in 89, those are real and organic. But after we murder Chinese diplomats, oh, it's, uh, this is fake, you know, this is, this is agitprop by the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, it's so fucking rich. I mean, being lectured to by him, the only thing worse than being lectured to and moralized at by American politicians is having that done by British politicians. And not because the British politicians these days necessarily have more blood on their hands. They're just more pathetic because their only, you know, clout in world politics is by having a more aggressive subservience to international Zionism. They're, they're like the outlet. A friend of mine describes the UK as the like the outlet store to the to the corporate HQ where like you can't really like you can try to speak to a manager, but you're never going to speak to anyone that matters. <laughs> yeah, don't don't go to uh I just wanted to put that in context. Don't don't go to Whitehall, Buckingham Palace, go to the City of London and the uh mansions, the many mansions that the Rothschilds command in the British Isles, you'll probably find a closer resemblance to real power that uh controls the actual direction of that particular uh slice of Well, I think they called it Airstrip 1 in 1984, so I think that's about right. There's another incident that I think adds a layer of deeper irony. Uh, I just thought about it. You might remember the uh, the journalist Amber Lyons. Lyon. Uh, she, no, uh, who's that? Uh, Nick would remember her. She worked for CNN. Yeah, Amber Lyons was the one who worked for CNN yeah. doing hearings on color revolution. Well, so let me let me explain. She yeah. So she she worked for CNN and she was uh, uh, she kind of elucidated that part of what CNN was doing at the time of the Arab Spring was that it was uh, selectively covering different countries uh, depending on how the U.S. State Department and Foreign Service really wanted that country to be perceived. And so uh, in the case of uh, Egypt, in the case of Syria, uh, in the case of Tunisia, in the case of Libya, uh, these were countries that were targets for one reason or another, and they needed to be perceived a certain way. Um, the Arab Spring did get out of hand in some respects. There were elements of, I think, U.S. 
friendlies, I guess we could call them, that were caught up in the drama. One of uh, those friendlies would have been Bahrain. And uh, Bahrain, uh, the, the government of Bahrain, which is uh, very much akin to uh, uh, Oman or Saudi Arabia or the UAE in how it functions, uh, didn't want this uh, groundswell to get out of control. And they uh, committed a fair number of, uh, of uh, put-downs or crackdowns that were violent, resulted in deaths. Um, nothing, you know, totally out of control, but relative to the scale and scope and size of the country, comparable to Tiananmen, I would say. Um, and CNN had some kind of contract with the government of Bahrain in which they would actually not only uh, not portray the events almost at all, but they would actually, in tandem with that, create pro-regime propaganda there's some kind of outfit they had within CNN that was on contract to create um, regime propaganda, or, to, or you could use them to make tourism videos. Yeah, I mean the relationship really... isn't that complicated. You got, I just gotta say, the, the, keep in mind, Bahrain is the headquarters of the U.S. Navy's Fifth Fleet. Right. <laughs> yeah. <know>? So, <laughs> so. Yeah. So you know, it is interesting that um, you know, in one sense, we have you know the the cultural zeitgeist basically has no focus on it and the major major american media organizations are actually not only running cover but actively boosting a you know a regime that's killing people um something uh, another another uh, in the in the same region you have yemen the peripheral uh sort of uh anarchy uh on saudi arabia's southern flank and uh, this place is just has been in uh, really tumultuous, horrible violence for like well over a decade now. And uh, there's multiple factions involved. There's internationalist factions. There's factions that are actually native to the country that have different backers, both internally and externally. The Yemeni politics is, is very, very complicated. It's 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 uh, interesting if you want to know more about uh, you know Gulf Arab um, political leanings and, and ideology. You can learn a lot about it through the conflict in Yemen uh, and what people there are like. But there's been a number of you know truly horrific things done by both sides, and generally the only side, or not even both sides, multiple sides. Uh, there's at least three or four different factions. Uh, but all the factions have done pretty horrible things to one another, to, to civilians caught up in the casualties. Uh, and generally, the only side that receives focus happens to be uh, the Houthis that are backed currently by uh, Iran. So this is another example of, you know, probably hundreds if not thousands dead directly attributable to some of the factions that the U.S. supports or tacitly supports or uh, indirectly supports through its support of uh, of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia uh, that receives almost no coverage. Receives almost no coverage at all. And the coverage is only ever framed in a, in, in a way to negatively portray uh, the Houthi rebels. Uh, I'm not taking their side or anyone's side, but you do see this uh, sort of strange hypocrisy uh, 
the focus on Tiananmen is just bizarre because the, you know, the United States active, not even factoring in some of the internal hypocrisy to how the country now functions, the United States actively backs uh, countries, regimes, autocrats, or however you want to, however you want to describe them, um, that do equally terrible things to people. Uh, so it's not exactly strange to say, well, this is done for geopolitical and, and it's a little cynical. And yeah, we all know that. And that's probably at the root of what a lot of this is about. It's just geopolitics. It's just business. Uh, but it is strange, uh, I think, that the legacy of Tiananmen keeps being brought up in a very hollow sense. And it's, and, and it's always brought up without any nuance as to what actually happened and, and is are there you know equally comparable events whether they're condensed into a single point of time or longer periods of time that are that that we should also be discussing should we talk about Bahrain should we talk about Yemen uh, should we talk about why the US is involved with you know this sort of business um, no one can really ever go into that. So you're, you're left with these sort of very hollow um, uh, deliberations about Tiananmen. Uh, and, I, and I actually, I blame the American conservative movement, which is just so obsessed yeah. with Tiananmen, that they've, they've turned this into a very strange talking point. Uh, on some level... My impression is that they believe that this is some kind of like uh, needle that they can truly sort of rile up the Chinese central government with Tiananmen. Uh, you know, China's just not like that. It's not, China is not Turkmenistan. It's not North Korea. It's not a, it's not a, a, a completely ridiculous place where uh, you know, people believe like an alternative reality. That's just not what China's like at all. Uh, so I, I would say that if anything, it, it, it's all so very hollow because these people have very little historical nuance. You can bring up Waco, you can bring up Yemen, you can bring up all these things, and, and they'll never factor it into why they're. They think you bring up nine eleven, <laughs> right? You, you know, they'll never they'll never factor that into you know when they're trying to find a way to insult. The, the I mean, it, it's all Darmok at Tanagra at a certain point. I mean, the American right. political animal is uh, probably a little more than a Star Trek character at, at this the point. Walls fell. As the walls fell, yeah, the. Uh... I, on the subject that Hans mentioned, because I didn't, I did want to make sure to uh, get in an opportunity to bash the American right. Um, so I'm really glad it's actually in my notes to do that. And uh, so Hans gives me the opportunity. So to flesh that out a little bit, we don't need to go too into the weeds, but you have to keep in mind that in the context of um, the pro-Zionist Cold War uh, historical dialectic that. Uh, captured the minds of the American right and has never let go, despite the Cold War being long since over. Uh, the China was never the center of the international uh, Gentile communist conspiracy. That was, of course, Moscow. I mean, 
there was definitely a lot of historical talk about it in the early decades following the Second War. But when Nixon went to China uh, and the Sino uh, uh, Soviet split took place, that ended the uh, anti Chinese propaganda from the uh, uh, American uh, Jewish press. And it was actually the people really who were most uh, up in arms about Tiananmen, you know, academic, intel the Western intelligentsia, if you will, uh, were actually the left-wing uh, disenfranchised Maoists and, and the lib neoliberals, of course. But neoliberals are, you know, they're, they're driven by real interests. The ideological dimension of it uh, from outrage was the... Because uh, you have to keep in mind, Maoism was very much in vogue for a little bit in the West. Uh, it was just like the new hip thing, you know, that you didn't have to put any skin in the game behind, etc. But there was an element of that, even though that itself is kind of funny because uh, the complexity of the Chinese politics there... I, Point being, as from the perspective of the American right, they didn't really have a huge dog in the fight at the time. And it was only retroactively, actually, in the really, I think, in the past, you know, uh, two decades, but more so the past decade after the Orange Era uh, and China, the whole uh, that, that thing uh, where you were able to get the American right to believe that the enemy of America, uh, re the real America, the enemy of American people, I should say. Uh, is an external enemy, um, when, of course, it's a internal alien enemy. I mean, America is well-captured already, uh, but you get these people talking about... I, I encounter it all the time, actually, like, even in, sadly, even, like, just normal life, like, talking to, you know, uh, right-winger types just you know, throughout the day of whatever. Well, well uh, look, uh, on, on the we'll surface of things, things, if you don't understand... Jewish power in the United States and the world as a, as a whole, it makes sense to look at the world as a bunch of nation states. And clearly China has become a geopolitical rival to almost everyone. And that was not true 20 years ago when Clinton was uh, talking to Zhang uh, Zemin about China joining the world trade organization, et cetera. Um, but the fact that we have a massive trade deficit with them is a fact. It has a lot to do with the fact that the United States is not really a nation state anymore. It's really just a economic zone, as we've discussed, that is effectively running a, a rickety empire that needs to export its currency in order to solidify has, its, its control no no it, it wasn't like that always it used, we used to be a creditor nation uh it really was world war one that kind of started the, the, the decline uh, world war ii especially uh but th there, uh, there american american identity was nascent and it was strangled to death in the cradle I have to say that you can go on, Adam. But I sure, to, sure. But this is there, there's 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 the some rationality to recognizing that the industrial base has been exported in return for plastic junk at Walmart, uh, and that's a problem. 
Yeah. Now the root of that problem is what I think you're getting yeah. at, but it is a symptom that is also a problem. Uh, and I don't want to give that too much short shrift. That is another um, chapter, though, in this story. Yeah, to to your point, to your point, Adam, another chapter in the story I did leave out was there was a resurgence that took place in the 90s with the, the campaign of Pat Buchanan right. uh, with respect to uh, hostility to China. But that was much more of along lines of what you're talking about in terms of um, uh, trade. It wasn't uh, yeah. seen as an existential enemy. Right. Right, uh, especially in ideological terms, and the uh, one thing I think that's really the American right has really struggled with was the loss of Russia, uh, or rather the loss of the Soviet Union. Uh, they've never really been able to recover from that, and especially now that Russia's positioned in a, in a way that allows them to be painted as like a, almost like a right wing power. Uh, at least, I mean, shit, you'll find, I mean, the fact that you have, like, uh, Fox News, kind of, I mean, Tucker Carlson, for example, you have uh, almost, you know, painting a sympathetic, to a certain extent, perspective of uh, Putin's Russia, is very interesting from the context of the Cold War, because, you know, now it has to be shifted over to China, because China, I mean, you have to remember, conservatives really are that dumb, where like it's enough that the Chinese Communist Party is the Chinese Communist Party, and that in and of itself is like an ideological threat. You know, they always emphasize that, right? The Alex Jones sort of the ICOMs, the you know, the, the ones who own Hollywood. Well, there there was a uh, if I don't it's, if I don't uh, put it in the uh, the outro, I'm sure Nick has some music or something. But uh, there, I'll put it as a link if at the very I least. Do, but actually. There there was a really hilarious. Um, clip that Infowars put out that was uh, basically Alex Jones doing Alex Jones. Uh, but if you did like a control R, uh, you know, control uh, find and replace on uh, China with Israel, it would make more sense. But effectively, it was China controls Hollywood. China right. controls the bank. China controls the military. I mean, like, all these like the ridiculous notions that you could see kind of how his handlers want him to say these things. And this is sort of like the, the, the right side of the same coin that effectively is running everything. Uh, but his, his sort of shtick since Trump uh, really has been aligned with this kind of like, let's make China the boogeyman. Uh, it's interesting though, that Jones and Infowars and the Steve Pichenics of the world have not really labeled Russia that way, as opposed to some of their other colleagues who have. Uh, so they're not in this sort of like, let's blow up uh, Moscow, defend Ukraine camp there, but they have focused a lot of that conservative energy. That, you know, 40 years ago, they did. That, that, they just, yes, they before the end of the Cold one. War. Yeah, for sure. They've shifted to, yeah. Right. Yeah, every, everything bad plotted in Moscow. Uh, you know, the thing is, is like Russians are believable. Like you can have a Russian agent or whatever. And it's, I mean, Chinese are Chinese, right? Like you could have a believable, like especially to the American that can't tell the difference between a Jew and a human being. It's like, you know, you could you could say that these are. You know, you could plant them in places or whatever. And then now the paranoia and, you know, all that can be ratcheted up, but the Chinese are just the Chinese. I mean, you know, it's like if your if your absentee landlord has an alias like uh, Joe Smith, and uh, he can't seem to 
to uh, write an email in coherent English. I, I wanted to talk. Uh, I, I think that's probably enough of bashing the American right um, for now, just because you could go on all day. I just wanted to close with a few more reflections, because the reason I think the parallels are interesting, I mean, Tiananmen in particular, what's so interesting about the comparison to January 6th is not necessarily the political significance. I mean, in many respects, the uh, Chinese who... A lot of them are were like illiterate workers and stuff. They had they were more politically coherent than the people who showed up at uh, the United States Capitol. But just from a really basic comparison, they're very similar places. You know, this is the U.S. Capitol. This is the Chinese Capitol. And the thing I wanted to point out is that we do still live in a unipolar world. Um, you know, much do people talk about that no longer being the case. They say, you know, Russia or China challenging the unipolar American hegemony. And I think that that is bullshit. And I think that something like January 6th is a good example of that. Well, well they're challenging it, but they right may not be color. they may not be usurping it. I mean, I think they're challenging it, though. But go ahead. Well, there's tensions. There's tensions. There's there's aspects of the American Empire that are definitely slipping, and oh, there's a yes. lot. You know, there was a time in the Cold War where you where you could sell people on Americanism in a way that was more believable. Because back then Absolutely. it was like, look at it's Absolutely. sex, drugs, and rock bowl kind of thing. This like Absolutely. looks fun. Now it's like homosexualism and like negrophilia. Yeah. And uh, no, you know, and, and children to, or whatever. to that I mean, point, it's a, it's a much harder and, sell. And, and before and nobody, I, before put, I put, put it another way, nobody thinks America's cool anymore. Right. No, to, to that point, and before I forget, I actually went on um, a friend of the show's show, uh, Lamprey Milt. He's a writer on American Sun occasionally, but he has his own show, uh, which I'll link to. Uh, and we actually were talking about uh, China in general, but specifically about the uh, Chinese real estate problems, which Soros has commented on if we want to talk about him before we close. But um, one of the things that came up was uh, one of his uh, co-hosts or friends uh, who had uh, taught English in China a few years ago uh, said was that when he would talk to Chinese uh, people, they would say, you know, we like America because it is rich and it is powerful. Never, ever did they say anything about homosexuals, transgenderism, or any of the other nonsense that the CIA and the powers that be are trying to advertise as the the next great thing because frankly let's let's face it america is not as rich and relatively powerful as it used to be and that's all we got to sell that's pretty pathetic so anyway just wanted to put that in perspective that's how the chinese view things they, right. they're like okay is it is it make me rich or benefit me you know they, they don't <laughs> the, the critical race theory stuff ain't gonna fly yeah, to a Chinese mother when her, her kid yeah. comes home. And actually, there was uh, evidence of that in San Francisco, of all places, where they booted out one of these stupid leftist school boards that was pushing that. Because their kids who yes. were trying to learn, yes. yeah. ever heard of that, uh, were, were basically coming home and telling them that all they hear about is, you know, racism and, you know, the mom is like, well, what, you know, where's your math homework? Where's your, you know, reading homework? 
and they got pissed rightly so so there you go i mean you the know this this that, new new like, you know american propaganda is garbage it's dude. an interesting phenomenon but the other thing about i'd say it's like well but they still live here like why no they do be well it's it's yeah, obvious i mean the uh, the until, talents that the, you, uh, the asian workers have well, that's my, is in demand and, and, and until that that's why yeah and they get paid for it. Yeah. Well, and, and until that's, I, I'm just saying it's, but they're making a compromise. And is that compromise worth it? And this is back to the, the oh, you'd have to ask them. You'd have to ask them. It's better to be poor and free than have some money and be a, be a slave and have your children hate you. I mean, to, well, to but are you like, truly what, free rich? if you're well, poor? You know, what's rich? That, that's the real, that's a real question. The most are you, valuable are you thing free if you're poor? Are, I mean, are, are the, you like the Amish? Are the Amish? They're not poor. Uh, on the spectrum, uh, more free than your average. Met- yeah, uh, prob- prob- uh, I mean, well, well, in some ways, no. It depends on how you frame it. Uh, it depends on what you want. But in in some dimensions, they are more free. In other ways, no. Why economic economic is not a way to analyze the health of a nation and of a people. It's, it's just not good enough. And because the main thing, and this, well, that, this that, that's true, Soros, but it is, it is not that, irrelevant at the same about, time. It, it's relevant. It may not be sufficient though. You know, it's, it's necessary, but not sufficient as the, the old academic phrase goes. Uh, you can't discount it though. You can't ignore economics, but I would say, yes, it's not everything. Oh, economics is, the means it's you're dealing with means and ends and you can't use economics to determine ends that's that's never you're always you're gonna you're gonna sell yourself out if you do that as far as uh color revolutions my point about the unipolar world is america is ripe for a color revolution january 6th demonstrates that and if there was a true challenge a true power that was challenging jew world uh american hegemony uh, it would be easy to to insert. I mean, America, like, what makes us a, a, a society? <laughs> I have a hard time saying that word anymore. What makes a place, uh, let's say, ripe for a, a color revolution? And why it is, I think, that the attempts at gay opping the, uh, the Tiananmen uh, protests failed is because you need you need a lot of polarization. And by the way, the CIA said this much in their own analysis of uh, what was was going on i mean it's you need polarization in order to wedge in and america has plenty of that you have an entire population millions of people who you know if you had outside funding it was able and they do this a little bit i mean if you watch rt or whatever they'll 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 toe up to it and and dance around it but we're not getting any rubles out of it you know what i'm saying like <laughs> they'll 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 highlight on their on their programs they'll highlight the um, uh, f- uh, festival of nigger carnage and all that and say like, oh, uh, America's police brutality and whatever. And I, I didn't follow their coverage very closely of the, because I don't really watch the news at all. But the January 6th stuff, I I think like Putin made some comment about it, if I remember correctly. You know, because it's low-hanging fruit. It's easy to do. I mean, America is going around, um, you know, school marming everyone else. All of the their garbage is right there for everyone to see, but 
the point is, is that like you could do a color revolution in America, and I'd be happy. I mean, sign me up, man. I like, I I will wave the red book. I will I will wear my Mao hat, like whatever, you know. Just throw us. Yeah, throw but us who's money. who's your Mao? Oh, we'll and, work it out. And, Let's. Uh... And was was Mao, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, funded know. by an external power, or was it a true grassroots native you know, entity? And where's our version of that? Um, you know, we, we have many problems I think for real. I think, I think now, I think now is a, was an, exp uh, yeah, we can do more. I, I'd be happy to do like full Mao content and full cultural revolution content. Oh, no, no. I was just know, asking, do we have, do we have somebody like that in America today? Say, uh, if you're looking for that, those obviously not, not. We wouldn't be having this conversation if we did, <laughs> we would be doing a lot less talking and, uh, uh perhaps we would yeah. start to really, uh, you know, we would take a physics lesson in, in dropping objects out of university windows. Mm. But the uh, the point I was going to make about George Soros, I, I did mention. Yeah, let's talk about him because I've got his uh, his maybe. recent but, uh, uh, Hoover Institute speech in front of me, uh, which is a uh, interesting organization I, because I about that, like, I can make a general point. Yeah. I'd like, I'd like to hear you talk about that. I'll just make a general point about this because this is kind of what I'm building to as to why why it is that I think that it failed, why it wasn't successful to get up it. And I think that the name of George Soros' organization and how we can understand this through the events in the later half of the 20th century in China and political and economic changes that took place is the, the open society. The enemy of the international money power is a closed society. I mean, this is the reason that the enemies of Zog, the, the two real hostile states, that they are they're really the the true the states that they would really like to overthrow completely are North Korea and Iran. It's because they can't you can't get into these things. You can't wedge your way in because they have systems in place that shut the Jew out. And the thing about China, a lot of attention is they were dancing around letting some of this in. And they did. They did let some of it in. Is it going to be the end of them? I don't I don't know. I mean, who knows? It's the literature will tell. I mean what what may come out of will there be another cultural revolution in China? Will it be another cultural revolution? I don't know. But what I do know is that a, in order to to be able to resist this type of imperialism, uh, you need to have a strong people who you need unity. And this is what, you know, it was accomplished in a very crude way with the Cultural Revolution, not denying that, but it was accomplished to a large extent. You know, would would really with the Chinese military, would they really, uh, you know, burn Chinese, I don't know, some kind of. Uh, Chinese, I don't know if they have what their equivalent of whatever the kooky shit the Waco people believed in. Uh, that's not really the point. The point is, would they do this to their own people? I mean, I don't think so. I, I, I think, it, especially when you watch the footage from Tiananmen and you watch how the military was interacting with the people there, these were one people. They were, they were a people. And they had common understanding 
I won't say common tradition because a lot of that was wiped away in the Cultural Revolution because you don't need that. I mean, you can rebuild tradition if you have blood. You can make new traditions. It doesn't matter, honestly. I mean, yeah, sure, something is lost to history, but something is always lost to history. Uh, I would just say that the way that you resist is not to be an open society. That's what it is. It means that money can buy you. It can buy, it can buy your leaders, and buy your people, and then they can prostitute you, and that's what they do. Well, I'll save some of this perhaps for another show where I agree with what you're saying. In order to resist, you you do have to have some form of of closing of your your border in uh, control of who comes in and out and what ideas come in and out. Uh, all I'll say, though, is that the success of isolationism has not been a good one. And I think the recognition of that was what Deng Xiaoping was trying to do when he took over after Mao. And the way I would phrase it is it's not necessarily uh, a binary of open or closed what's interesting about China is that it's sort of like a, you can think of it like a, a cell, like a biology, like a, it has a membrane and what goes in and out of it is controlled, but it doesn't mean that nothing comes in and out because clearly the Chinese are the largest exporter of goods one of the largest importers of raw materials the world has ever seen. Uh, they are a huge importer of ideas. Uh, They're not a huge exporter of ideas. That's another interesting sort of contrast. Uh, but they have learned, which I would encourage anyone to do, uh, greatly from others. And unlike perhaps the North Koreans, they have done uh, more uh, outreach to invite in some of the good, but hopefully to keep out the bad. And I would say that's, that's a generally good policy, you know, but this indiscriminate throw open your borders, throw open your markets, which is what people like George Soros will advocate are basically going to lead to your enslavement to people like him. Uh, and that's what his speech is effectively advocating for. Now, of course he doesn't say that literally, but he'll basically make all these sort of grandiose parallels between, you know, the, the, the history of the world, you know, Nazi Germany showed that, you know, the closed society was the, the one that is not the path forward. And here's my point, though. It, it wasn't empirically the way forward because they did lose. Um, and the Anglo globalist model has been more successful as a super entity. Uh, the problem with it, though, is that we don't the little people control any of that people like Soros control it. And the problem going forward is if you're not large enough, like China perhaps is large enough to compete with something like this question is, can you go your own way? And if you can't is a Singaporean model, I would advocate perhaps is maybe a compromise between the closed off versus open society. Uh, is that a, a possible teachable moment for nations trying to 
compete and survive in a global competitive marketplace. And when I say marketplace, it doesn't just mean goods and services. It's also ideas and culture and everything like that. Uh, but the, the Soros article is interesting. It, it, it's a lot of it is unsaid because, of course, he's a little more shrewd than, you know, your average uh, political wonk. Uh, but it's a very clear message overall that he is an advocate for globalism. Uh, and he's literally calling for the overthrow of the current Chinese government, which is a pretty strong thing to say. Um, it'd be interesting to see if he would write an article like that about uh, Putin, because Putin actually has him on the uh, arrest list in Russia. Uh, and then there's an article that uh, from Russia today talking about this particular uh, thought piece that Soros put out that I'll link to as well. Uh, but anyway, I, I don't want to debate, you know, the merits of globalism. I'm not necessarily advocating for it. I'm not really advocating for it. My, my real question that I'll leave for the audience and anybody who's listening and thinking about this is if you are in a situation where you're having to survive globalism is closing yourself off to the point where China was closing themselves off, uh, under Mao to the point where they basically stagnated and not been able to keep up with their neighbors. Uh, is that the path or is perhaps what the Chinese did, which was a, a hybrid strategy of socialism with Chinese characteristics or something like that, maybe a, a third way, uh, to deal with the challenges and opportunities of globalism. That's all I'll say. I don't think it's any coincidence that these events took place following the the early moves towards liberalization in China. And I, I think you're playing with fire if you think that you can win that game. I think that the foundation that was built by the revolution, Chinese revolution, was probably the strongest element. Yes, it's managed prosperity and economic growth it has its merits for sure but politically i think it created a situation where they were ultimately weaker and i think that the reason that they were able to survive the turmoil of the late 80s was because of what was built under mao and i i think that it would be nice to see 100 flowers bloom in america Hey, I'm not saying